The book of Ephesians is a New Testament epistle toward the back of the book, toward the end of the Bible. So if you took to the back, found Revelation, the last book, and took a left, you'd find Ephesians before long. And I want to read this morning in light of Parent Dedication Day and Mother's Day and the oldest Mother's Day, a passage of Scripture found in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 21 and following. We'll read through chapter 6, verse 4. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Skip to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So ought, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause shall a man... A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord." Now, having children and raising children and having a family is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Sometimes I think some people feel like you can get too much of a good thing. Somebody wrote in to the humor section of a national magazine that his church had a beautiful 30-inch papier-mâché stark that they used in decoration when they had um, baby showers at the church. And one night, the ladies got out the, uh, the stark to decorate with it and found they couldn't use it. Somebody had wrung the bird's neck. I guess he thought that uh, there's too much of a good thing. I heard on the radio yesterday as I traveled the, the uh, conviction that it's harder to raise children now than when our parents were raising children. The uh, power went out in a... Um, cafeteria, school cafeteria, and the cooks couldn't finish the meal, but they had to have something for the children. So they whipped up some of, the, some of these uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at the last minute. And one little boy said in the line, well, it's about time, at last, a home-cooked meal. <laughs> some, of us, some of us can identify with that, I think. And yet for all of that, Every survey of American attitude indicates how much we believe in the importance of the family. 
A recent Gallup survey indicates that 85% of American men believe that the family is essential to happiness, to a happy and satisfied, fulfilled life. And when these men were asked to list what they believed were the most important factors in having a happy and satisfied, fulfilled life, they did not list at the top of the list money or status or fame or power. As a matter of fact, just below love and health, they listed as what they believed to be the most important thing to have a happy life was a family. Even the communist governments, which once downgraded family life, have now, to the surprise and delight of the free world, begun to to advocate pro-family policies. We all believe in the family And we believe it's necessary for a happy life. We love to be together as a family. And we believe it's necessary to have a fulfilled life. But the question is, how do we have happiness in the home? I want to say right up front this morning that I'm not coming to you today to talk about uh, happiness in the home as an authority, as a perfect father or a perfect husband. I'm not. As a matter of fact, I wish I could just take my place there in the pew with you. And some of you who have a great deal more gray hairs than I do and just sit with you and listen to your secret on how to have a happy home or just to sit with you and let's search the Scriptures together to find if there is any clue in the Word of God as to how to have happiness in a home. I think there are some clues. As a matter of fact, I, I, we might label this sermon as the four R's to accomplish happiness in the home. And the first is recognition. We need to be aware, I think, of the need of every person in the home for, uh, to be recognized. We need to be aware that we all long to be appreciated, even by those, especially by those who are the closest to us. A man came home from work one afternoon to find his house in shambles. I mean, the beds were not made and the sink was full of dirty dishes and the kids' toys and clothes were scattered throughout the house and dinner wasn't ready. And he said, my, what on earth happened? And she said, nothing, absolutely nothing. You're always wanting to know what I do in the daytime. I just want you to look around. Today I didn't do it. In healthy marriages, the husband and the wife recognize and appreciate the contribution that each makes to the success of that that family and that home. And their words of appreciation and praise that are freely given. That might be the missing ingredient of your home. Someone writes, how deliciously sweet praise is. We work for it. How we languish and die when we do not get it. But when it comes, how it cheers us up and makes our face to shine. Oh, the gracious ministry of commendation. Jesus was the greatest person at this ministry who has ever lived. He was quick to praise. When you read the gospel, you just underline in your quiet time as you read the gospel and underline the times that Jesus commended the good in people. He stood ready to recognize the good in every person. He was quick to praise. Someone said of him, when he saw the first signs of penitence, 
the first sproutings of goodness. He would rise upon it with the sun of His praise, and He would rain upon it with His glad encouragement. And because this is Mother's Day, I want us to think this morning of the tremendous debt of gratitude we owe our wives and our mothers. Nowhere is the ministry of commendation more needed than in the home. And there is nothing any more needed by some of these wonderful people than just an occasional heartfelt expression of gratitude and commendation. Lowell Quillen has his Aunt Het to say, to say something that we all, every husband and every child should ponder. She said, I don't mind sacrificing myself for my family. What aggravates me is for them to act like it was my duty and nothing to take special notice of. And I have a feeling that every wife and every mother here at some time or another could say that very same thing if they expressed what was really on their heart. Now I know if you go home today and spread it on thick, she's not going to really take you too seriously. She's probably going to say, well, you're just doing what the preacher said. You know, you're just doing what the preacher told you to. You might ought to, might ought to wait until she forgets this sermon to start and then do it kind of gradually lest the shock is too great. Mark Twain said, try complimenting your wife even if it frightens her at first. <laughs> the gracious ministry of commendation. And this recognition we need to direct toward our children. And the recognition that children need is the quality time we should spend with them. In Bruce Larson's book, Believe and Belong, he tells about Brooks Adams. Brooks was the son of Charles Francis Adams, one of our farmer ambassadors to Great Britain. And one day in this young Brooks' life, his father took him fishing. He took him out all day they spent together fishing. It was a glorious day. And he wrote in his diary, we had a glorious time the best day of my life. And later on in his life, Brooks Adams looked back on that day as the turning point of his life and he referred to it as the time that changed his life when his father died years later. Brooks Adams went through his father's belongings and he found his father's diary and he just instantly turned to that day that was such a glorious day for him. And he found his father's entry on that day was this. Spent all day fishing with my son. A wasted day. And I think that some of our children recognize that. That we feel that any time spent with them is wasted. And the consequences are disastrous. In Robert Raines' book, Creative Brooding... He has a letter written by a runaway son to his parents. Listen to this and see if it strikes home a note to your heart. Dear folks, thank you for everything, but I'm going to Chicago and try to start some kind of new life. You asked me why I did those things and why I gave you so much trouble, and the answer is easy for me to give you, but I'm wondering if you will understand. Remember when I was about six or seven and I used to want to just, you to just listen to me? I remember all the nice things you gave me for Christmas and my birthday. And I was really happy with the things about a week at the time I got the things. But the rest of the time during the year, I really didn't want presents. I just wanted all the time for you to listen to me. 
like I was somebody who felt things too. Because I remember even when I was young, I felt things. But you said you were busy. Mom, you were a wonderful cook. And you had everything so clean and you were tired so much from doing all those things that made you busy. But you know something, Mom? I would have liked crackers and peanut butter just as well if you had only sat down with me a while during the day and said to me, tell me all about it so maybe I can help you understand. If anybody asks you where I am, tell them I've gone looking for somebody with time because I've got a lot of things I want to talk about. Recognition. And I think there's a second element in a happy home. That's the element of romance. The most favored people in the world are the, are the children whose parents love each other and who express that love in a demonstrative way day by day. You know, I counsel with hundreds of people in a year's time as a pastor. And the people that I talk to, especially those who have depression and who have image distortion, will often tell me, you know, one of the things I've missed the most in my life is seeing my parents express their love to each other. I missed that. Now, I know we've done that. But I suppose that when the children come, by the time the children come, you know, we begin to direct our energies toward them. And we begin to take each other for granted. So at least by the time the last child is born, we really do not express that kind of affection and love toward each other that we did at the first. The Bible says that the, the husband and wife is to leave father and mother and to cleave unto one another. And that word means to be glued together in an unbreakable bond. It's a word that suggests the deepest kind of intimacy. It expresses the deepest kind of sharing. It's a word that depicts the total sharing of two people's lives. You remember when you first fell in love? It's been a long time that you remember that. For some of you, it's been a while. How you could just talk to each other for hours, you know, about anything, about everything, about nothing. And when you ran out of anything to say, you just sit and hold hands, you know, for hours. You remember when you'd go out and spend an evening together and you'd get home, the first thing you'd do is call your, your honey, so you could talk to her some more, or him, or him. You remember when you were facing some major decision in your life, you wouldn't think about dealing with that decision when you first fell in love without first consulting with your true love. And you remember when, when something exciting came into your life, you just thought you were going to burst until you could share that with your true love. You remember how you used to share everything together? You remember that? Well, that's the purpose of marriage, really. It's not the purpose of courtship. The purpose of marriage is in order for us to share the deep experiences and joys of intimacy and romance. You have to cultivate that. I'm speaking to myself. You have to, you have to work at that. 
When you get as old as I am and as ugly as I am, uh, you, you really do have to, to, to work at it. It's, somebody said that marital happiness is like a tree. It has to grow before you can enjoy its shade. And it will not grow unless you care for it. It'll die. The romantic expressions of love that our children need to see in us are not just responses to feelings. It, got, it has to be more than that. It has to be a deliberate choice and decision of the will. It has to be practiced. And there is no substitute in marriage for romance. The conscious, constant expression of love to each other. And you might say, well, I don't like that mushy stuff. I don't need that. But everybody in this room and outside this room hungers for affection and love, even if they're not able to admit it. And that kind of demonstrative expression of our love must go down to the children, must be expressed to them. Surveys indicate that the healthiest and the happiest infants are those that have been held a lot and caressed and loved where they nurse their mothers. And you never outgrow that need. You never get too old to be held, to be loved, to be caressed. Romance. There is recognition. There is romance. There is responsibility. That word is written in red type across this, this text I read a moment ago. When he says... Husbands and wives be subject to one another. He's talking about the responsibility we have to each other, the obligation. The obligation to be a certain way and to do certain things, a responsibility to each other that should be practiced as a conscious will. He said, Children, obey your parents. He was talking about a responsibility that children have under God to be a certain kind of person and to act a certain kind of way, not because your parents deserve it, but because God demands it. And you can never receive the answer to prayer and the blessing of God if you're not obedient to your parents as the responsibility God has given you. And he said, parents, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He's talking about a responsibility not to teach them how to be the best athlete or the most beautiful girl in the valley, but to teach them how to walk with Christ and to love Him and to know Him and to serve Him, to give Him the loving example of a Christian home. That is your obligation and your responsibility. It's interesting that the biblical word for love that binds people together is the word henosis, and it's translated one flesh. But the thing that makes us one in a family or in a marriage is really not fleshly. It's not flesh, it's spirit. It's an act of commitment. And I suppose that's why so many teenage marriages end in divorce. Did you know that if you marry while you're a teenager, the chances of your getting a divorce are four times greater than if you wait until after 21. And I don't know the reasons, all the reasons for that, but I believe that a part of the reason is that when we're young and immature, we're not ready for the commitment that marriage demands. 
We may be ready for marriage and its privileges, but we may not be ready for the commitment that is essential to marriage. And Emil Brunner, the great social thinker of our time, has said the one basic element of a marriage is the obligation to be faithful. Some of you have read or seen Thornton Wilder's play by the skin of our teeth. In this play, Mr. Antrobus asked his wife for a divorce on the shoddy, familiar grounds that people ask for divorce. And this is her reply. Listen to it. I didn't marry you because you were perfect. I didn't even marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. And that promise you gave me made up for all of your faults. And the promise I gave you made up for all of mine. Two imperfect people were joined together and that promise made our marriage. And when our children were growing up, they were made safe not by our house. They were not even made safe by our love for each other. They were made safe by our promise. The one great characteristic of God is His fidelity. He is the one faithful one who keeps the covenant, who keeps His promise. And the one essential ingredient He desires in His people is fidelity to the promise. Whether that promise is made to each other or to God. I'm talking about the kind of commitment that says, I'll stay here and I'll make this thing the best it can be. You can always count on me. Now I know that there are some marriages where love dies and there's nothing there. And I also understand, I'm not so naive to believe that you know every marriage is, is just what it ought to be. I know that it has to be both ways in a marriage. My telephone rang last night or this morning at 3.26. I've got one of these clocks that shines on the ceiling. And I went to answer the telephone, and it was the familiar cry that I get in the night sometime. The husband was drunk and left home for about the fourth time. And he was abusive, and there was neglect. And they were hungry and in need. And this was her question at 3.30 in the morning. Do you think God expects me to stay with this for the rest of my life? Now I know that there are times when love dies and there is no responsibility and so do we linger there. I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that in this sermon. What I am talking about is a spirit of commitment to the promises you've made to each other. And I'm talking about a spirit of commitment that young people must be willing to make when they marry. And I tell them as they, stand, uh, as they get ready to stand to be married in my premarital counseling session, the first thing you do is throw away the parachute. And they want to know what that means. And I say, you make up your mind that you're here for good. There is responsibility. And finally, of course you expect it's got to be there is religious faith. 
I, I don't know how you could deal with interpersonal relationships in a family without coming finally to the apex, and that is one's faith in God. It's interesting that God has always dealt in the family. As He began to show His act of creation, He did so with a family, and children were born. And as He made His covenant to Abraham, it was to His seed, His family. And when he, started, when he began to reveal His love to mankind and reveal His nature to the world, He came in the child. He came to a family. And it's my absolute conviction that the happiest homes and the happiest marriages and the happiest families are those where people come together occasionally and systematically and continuously to worship together and to pray together and to recognize the sovereignty of God upon their life. And they practice His presence and they obey His will and they're joined as a family. There's Herbie over here and Dr. Parkinson over here. If they were to come together here as... Suppose that each of them got up from where he was and came to this pulpit. The closer they got to the pulpit, the closer they would be to each other. The closer you come to God in your marriage, the closer you come to your wife and your husband, the closer you come to God in your family, the closer you come together as a family. It's dynamically important that the first miracle Jesus performed was in a home. You remember that in Cana of Galilee. He was there as a guest of the wedding. And they came to him and said, uh, Jesus, we, we have no wine. They've run out of wine. They've run out of that which was the symbol of joy. They ran out of that which was essential to the wedding feast. Occasionally I'll sit in an office with a couple and they'll say to me, Pastor, we have run out of love. We have run out of joy. We have run out of patience. We have run out of fulfilling purpose. We have run out of hope. And they're talking about their marriage and their relationship with their children. And I tell them that's just where Jesus begins for He never begins to do His work until there is an admitted need. Can you ever find a miracle that Jesus performed where the platform was not the need, the positive need, a failure of man? He calmed the wind because they ran out of courage. He raised the widow's son because He ran out of life. He fed the 5,000 because they ran out of bread. He, raised, he healed the paralytic because he had run out of hope. And whenever there's a despair, there's a failure, Jesus begins to, to do His work. That's what I tell them. I tell them just as in the wedding of Cain of Galilee, Jesus had to be invited to be the guest. But after He was the guest, He soon became the host. He was there as a guest. And then he begins to preside over that marriage to bring the joy back. And that's exactly what the Lord wants to do. 
He wants you to invite Him into your marriage, into your family, into your home. And he want, He'll not come there just because you're a Christian. doesn't mean you have a Christian home. He wants to come into that home and reside. And then He wants to preside over it in sustaining power and fulfillment. And I know it's time to go, but... You know, I, I graduated a daughter yesterday from Hardin-Simmons, and so I've got to be just a little... Uh, have a little melancholy, you know. Spare me just a minute. When I was 21 years old, she was born. You talk about ignorant. I made so many mistakes. And I have asked God and I've asked her to forgive me for the mistakes I made as an immature child, really, as a parent. But there has been very few days in my life that I have not committed her to God in prayer and asked Him to cover her with His blood. And as she walked across that stage yesterday, I did it again. I don't really know how a parent can make it in life without having the privilege of standing and saying, God, these are our children gifts you've given me and we commit them to you and we pray for your guidance and we pray you'll cover them with your blood and that you'll guide them with your love and your light for how are how can you be patient how can you be loving how can you be gentle and forgiving without the grace of god without his guidance and help So I ask you to invite Christ to be the Lord of your life and the Lord of your home. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the privilege of having children, having a family. We thank you for our mothers. The first time we learned about Christ was at our mother's knee first time we knew about the church is when she took us. first time we read the Bible is when she helped us read it. Thank you for our mothers. Father, we pray now that because we have had the privilege of a happy home, that we take those things to heart that you said in your word that we might have a happy home. May those decisions that need to be made this morning in this place regarding our relationships to each other and to our children, to our parents, be made publicly, courageously, in Jesus' name. Now we have invitations here this morning, these invitations. First invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He's your Savior. He died for you. He wants you to come to Him. You have so many needs and so many problems that only He can supply. Come to Jesus this morning. Or you may need to come to say in the second invitation, these invitations are together, of course. We want to put our family here in this church to serve God here. We want to pledge our family to, to God, to a family altar we commit ourselves we want to rededicate ourselves to be greater parents, to be better to each other and to our children. 
Young people might come to say, I feel so bad about the way I act toward my parents. I want God's forgiveness. We'll give you that opportunity to make these decisions before the Lord right now. And if you're coming, you come right on the first stanza while we stand and sing. You come.